Oh, there we go. So, um, hello. I, I don't. I never know how to start these things. So I always start them with like two solid minutes of incoherent rambling. But uh, you are listening. That sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who would have guessed, right? So um, you're listening to MiseryTourisms.com. Dot coms <laughs> Misery Movies podcast, uh, which is a film podcast about movies. <laughs> it's a movies podcast. Could you guess <laughs> from the name? No, it it's a podcast. It's a film discussion and critique podcast where we talk about miserable movies, movies about terrible situations, movies about sad, pathetic, disturbing things. Um, and uh, yeah, and we're on episode number eleven, which you would never have been able to guess from the just the sheer um, unprofessionalism of this intro. But so, as usual, I'm joined with a couple of our contributors, AJ. Yo. And for the first time on the podcast, Brandon. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. <clears throat> So, we are actually uh, planning to do a series of Halloween-themed podcasts uh, because it's October and it's Halloween time. Now, in theory, uh, we were hoping to do three or four uh, basically Halloween-themed movies, whether those be horror movies, ghost movies, just – I mean, there's a lot of overlap between the kind of dark, disturbing contact content that we – normally do and Halloween anyway, but we're going to have even more Halloween themed films than usual. And our goal is to do three or four of those movies in rapid succession and record a podcast for each one and then post them up here. And hopefully we'll get all those podcasts up <laughs> before the end of the month, before Halloween. We'll see. Uh, if you're listening to this around Christmas time and it was just posted yesterday, uh, I apologize, but more importantly, AJ, who, whose only job is to put the intro and outro music on the podcast, I'm sure she apologizes sincerely too, right, AJ? I have no regrets at all. No regrets? No regrets about the the episode that you've been sitting on for like a month? I'll probably be listening to Halloween podcasts around Christmas. Yeah, that's true. You would enjoy that. It's Halloween all year round for you. It is. As it should be. AJ, when does Halloween officially start? Uh, August 25th. Aug <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that, that is incorrect. It starts November 1st. No, it's, it's, yeah, okay, all right. That's fair. Yeah, okay. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fabulous. It's it's so basically Brandon's saying that your all year Halloween two month Halloween is too conservative and uh, oh yeah amateur yeah. hour okay twelve month Halloween twelve month Halloween okay well uh, since we're now on the twelfth month of twelve uh, month Halloween uh, I think it's only only appropriate that we do do Halloween themed podcast so. In that vein, um, 
Or uh, AJ. No pun intended, right? Oh, Jesus. I, 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 oh, my God. How many unintentional <laughs> puns? Am I it's not good that we're uh, two, three minutes into this podcast, and I've already made one unintentional pun, and I haven't said the name of the film yet. <laughs> so the movie, which AJ selected, is What We Do in the Shadows. And AJ, since you picked the film, do you want to introduce it for us? Sure. So What We Do in the Shadows is a mockumentary comedy about vampires. And it follows it follows a group of vampires in New Zealand who are staying in a flat together and their various hijinks. They're, they're the started <laughs> vampire hijinks. Exactly. And yeah, this is definitely, as you said, a comedy. Uh, how would you describe this comedy like tonally? It's, it's, surprisingly, it's not really a particularly dark comedy, even though it's about vampires. No, it really isn't. But it's it's uh I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a lighthearted comedy, uh but but if you had to use a couple of adjectives to describe this comedy, AJ, two adjectives, what would they be? Um, I'd say it's uh I'd say it's fairly quirky. Yeah, quirky was the first one on my mind too. And yeah, quirky second, fits would be um i i'm i'm drawing a blank honestly <laughs> just quirky and quirky right quirky. quirky and very quirky yeah maybe quirky and understated although not all of the humor is understated but there's a lot of that like it, it's actually it's a it's a the film is made as you, i think you mentioned is it's a new zealand film but there's a lot of that like office style like i was gonna say the same thing british humor um, yeah it's offbeat it's very offbeat and it's, yeah comparing yeah. it to the office is an excellent excellent comparison it's yeah, like it's, the office but about vampires basically the office with vampires yes go i'm surprised they didn't put that on the poster <laughs> What we do in the shadows, the office with vampires. So uh, with that in mind, oh, one thing, we should go over the general structure of this podcast in case we have a new listener. And if someone's listening, they'd have to be a new listener. Um, so the first half of this podcast, we're going to talk about this movie, What We Do in the Shadows, in sort of broad general terms what we're the key thing is that we're going to be totally spoiler free for the first half of the podcast so we'll talk about the movies movie maybe thematically talk about the movie perhaps structurally talk about like the plot only to the degree that it doesn't tell you anything that you uh, that would ruin the movie for you you know we may talk about the launching off point of the plot or the, um, you know, the premise of the film, but it's going to be more 
kind of broad critique of the film. And that at the end of that section, at the end of the first half, we're each going to review the film very quickly, give it a little rating. And then after that, I'll give you a warning. And the second half of the, of the episode will have spoilers. And then we'll really dive in deep and we'll talk about specific theme, uh, excuse me, talk about specific scenes and, um, yeah, and the ending of the film and uh, things that you might not want to find out before watching the film for the first time. Particularly since it is a comedy, we're going to try not to give the punchline to any jokes here in the first half either. Because the worst thing in the world is to have a joke explained to you, uh, especially before you've even heard the joke. <laughs> so, um, With that in mind, AJ, do you have a launching off point for us here? Um, hmm. Maybe we could start by talking about the three main characters. We could. I mean, they, they are, yeah. I mean, do you want to kind of introduce us to the three main vampires, AJ? Yes. So there is primarily a. Hopefully, you remember their names because I didn't. Um, let's see, there's first, I think it's Vladimir or some type of uh, variation of Vlad something. It, it was just uh, primarily. Vladislav. Yeah, Vladislav. It's just primarily meant to, you know, be Russian sounding kind of. Right. Um, and certainly there are no other vampires we can think of named Vlad, right? <laughs> exactly. So he is. Uh, basically like a torturer and um, a, a ladies man vampire yeah he's sort of a play on the archetypal medieval uh, Vlad the Impaler Dracula vampire you know very much so and then there's uh, Deacon who is What type of archetype would you say that Deacon is? Well, in the film, he's described as the bad boy, right? Because he's the younger vampire. Yeah. He's only one hundred and eighty yeah. some years old, so he's he's the young, fresh-faced, <laughs> uh, would-be badass vampire. Which, which to me is very, very ironic, given the portrayal of him throughout the rest of the film. <laughs> right. But that's more that offbeat humor that they used. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and he's also the more, I guess, abrasive member of the group. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And then the third one, he's the uh, the Victorian dandy vampire, and I don't remember what's his name. Uh, Viago, I think. Viago, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. He's a very fussy sort of. Uh, Oscar, Oscar Wilde-esque uh, vampire. <laughs> so they really have um, all of their vampire bases covered here. There's also, in case um, you're worried they missed something, there is a Nosferatu-esque vampire called Peter uh, who lives in a coffin in the basement. <laughs> yes. And yes. who is presumably the original vampire, at least in the group. 
so they really have, you know, uh, broadly speaking, every vampire archetype here. <laughs> yeah, they did a good job of actually approaching kind of the wide breadth of material that's out there with the vampire concept. Mm, that's one thing that I, that is one thing that I definitely wanted to talk about with this film is that for a comedy, this is surprisingly well-versed in vampire folklore. There really isn't any little odds and endsy piece of vampire trivia that they don't shoehorn in here, which is great because usually when you have a horror satire or a horror parody film, usually they don't go back much farther than like the B movies that like hammer horror films and they like, you know, the, 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 you know, it, it's like Blackula, you know, it's like, well, he, he looks like Dracula, but he's black, <laughs> you know, or it's like, right, right. Um, you know, it's some broad Dracula parody with the velvet cape and the, you know, the, the typical um, sort of Bram Stoker get up there, Bram Stoker rather get up. And usually as a result, they don't really have that much to work with. And it usually ends up burning out of its material pretty quickly. Like often the material is limited to, you know, this guy can turn into a bat and he's kind of a dandy and he has a ridiculous accent. And then they play that for all it's yeah. worth. Uh, and this movie, on the other hand, really, um, and maybe you, you can say more about this, Brandon, since you're more of a vampire expert than I am, but it really seems to delve deep into vampire folklore. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a lot of they, they uh, small details that they mine for jokes that really, oh, definitely, <laughs> really, you wouldn't even. That actually, honest to goodness, serious face vampire films don't even get into. You know, uh, well, yeah, so that, it's way too easy. Good. It's way too easy for anything that deals with vampires to be a very one-note kind of concept. Right. To produce a product that really just has that one focal point, that's all that they do. They just drone on and on and on. But they really did do a great job of capturing the diversity of it. And I think some of it may have been inspired kind of by the White Wolf vampires as far as some of the abilities that they portray throughout the film. That's interesting. That I didn't think about it, but maybe they are White Wolf have. players. I could, I could see White Wolf players writing a movie like this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I also thoroughly, thoroughly appreciated the horrendous Eastern European accent coming out of New Zealand <laughs> actors. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty great. I thought um, that was just pitch perfect. Yeah. Uh, one thing, of course, maybe... If they haven't played a lot of White Wolf, it's also possible that they're doing one better and drawing from the same source material, right? That Oh, absolutely. They've also done... One thing you have to hand to role-playing games is because they need to offer, as you said, a diversity of options in terms of races and classes and abilities and stuff. Often, they'll dive pretty deep into their source material material to find those options. So something like a White Wolf game, ironically, might be a little bit more well-versed in vampire lore, and especially in, in folklore and traditional um, 
uh, conceptions of vampires oh, than, you know, uh, a Dracula film because it has to do that extra leg worth to offer those options. And I feel like the same thing might have been happening here, that they were like, we're going to go, instead of like doing the like umpteenth horror parody film that makes fun of movies that were made in the, you know, in the fucking 30s (laughs) and, and that have been parodied to death even by Saturday morning cartoons, why don't we go back to the source material and find something there that we can make fun of. And I think the movie's better for it. I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. Uh, you could definitely tell that they did their homework. And it, and it paid off. Yeah. Um, AJ, did you want to jump in on this? No, that's... that's yeah, I, I also agree with that. <laughs> yep. So... One thing about, uh, for those of you who maybe have listened to previous podcasts, which I assume none of you have, but just the hypothetical audience, um, one thing you know about, would know about AJ's films is that up to this point, she's had a tendency to pick very polarizing films. Uh, The first film you picked was Hard Candy, right? Which I thought was... I, I thought it was idiotic. I, I thought it was one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen. Uh. Um, and Sarah, who is not on this podcast, but who has been with us in the past, really loved it. And of course, you liked it since you picked it. And then your second film was uh, a, another very quirky indie film called Black Pond. And I thought it was good. I thought it was a solid film. But Sarah fucking hated it absolutely <laughs> despised that movie so now that your turn has come so now that your turn has come around again i'm kind of curious to see if the aj effect is going to continue and if uh, <laughs> if this is going to be a film that one of us loves and the other hates or if we're going to have broad agreement about it we'll see honestly i'm kind of disappointed with my own movie choice this time Especially since it's like the Halloween edition, mm-hmm. so it should be my time to shine. But uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't really find any other. I really wanted to find a found footage style movie that Will would absolutely hate because that is, <laughs> that's kind of like a formula for Will to hate something and me to like it oh i would have hated that too that that would have been a great podcast but this one i feel is going to be mainly like just a bunch of yes men yeah it might be i mean i will say that i've never seen a found footage horror movie that i liked so uh odds would have been good that i would have hated it not that i've seen many i mean it's not it's not a genre i'm really particularly interested in at all I mean, I don't really like horror films very much to begin with. And if you add, like, the found footage conceit on top of that, eh, I don't know. I'm I'm very deeply into found footage, but, like, a lot of the movies that I've found uh, just don't satisfy that, like, indie aesthetic itch. I'm going to be honest. I don't think I've ever seen a great found footage film. I don't want to get too far away from this movie. Uh, but I don't think I I've seen some that I've sort of liked, like Chronicle was fine, although it 
it eventually reached a point where it was really stretching the limits of found footage um, to the degree that, like, they had to integrate, like, cell phone cameras and stuff in in order to have a source of the footage. And I thought that was kind of cool, but uh, eh. but it wasn't a great film by any stretch of the imagination. But anyway, while you're talking about – while this isn't a found footage film, this is a – mockumentary as you said which isn't that far from being a found footage film right uh which mockumentaries very much well i was going to say you must like uh mockumentaries because black pond was also a sort of it wasn't a mockumentary because it wasn't really a satirical film but it was sort of a faux documentary or it had documentary elements right yeah and since you since you mentioned that we might as well talk about this movie as a mockumentary um how effective do you guys think it was as a mockumentary i think i think it worked um but the concept of it being a mockumentary in the film didn't quite fit it was, it oh, why do you say that? A, I'm it's a weird balance you... point for me. Because mm. as a film itself, being a mockumentary and having that mockumentary format presentation, I like it. Mm -hmm. But it never really quite grounded for me as far as why they had a film crew following them around <laughs> in the first place. Yeah. And I mean, that's a running joke that they reference at multiple times yeah. through the film. And I think... Right, That's yeah. a sort of your mileage may vary thing. Like, is that a funny joke or is that just preposterous? You know, is it? <laughs> right. Exactly. And I think that depending on who you are and your sense of humor, the very fact that the documentary crew is there at all is going <laughs> to, I don't know. It's, it's either going to be hilarious or it's you're going to be spending the whole movie like shaking your fists at that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's the question of suspension of disbelief right. and just I, ignoring the fact that a fourth wall is even supposed to be there. <laughs> I I think it like it landed for me and it the like the precise way that they intended it to land. I think of it was wonderful for several reasons. One because I just love the. Uh, mockumentary like format in a movie it just makes a movie like really enjoyable to watch um, because you have you know you have the cutscenes of like the characters and that's split with you know what's actually happening but then of course there's like you know the joke of there's the documentary crew following them around but they also never address it, which I really appreciate because, like, in so many movies, they do address it. Though I, mean, well, they don't yeah, like they do. address it further than like. They oh, I see what you're it. saying. I see what you're saying. They acknowledge it, but yeah. they don't address why the heck that's happening. Yeah. Exactly. They don't address it, but they acknowledge it. But um, like the, in so many the similar movies, like. You'll find horror movies that want to use a found footage um, kind of mechanic and they'll make up like the most absurd premise to explain it. Of they'll go they'll jump through so many hoops of like 
<laughs> I I was reading about a horror film the other day where the main premise, the, the main thing that you're supposed to be scared of is that um, several different people are sent cameras and like they get an anonymous threat that if they stop filming, they'll die. <laughs> oh God. So it's like found footage speed, basically. It's speed. Right. Except instead of the bus slowing down, it's if you turn the camera off. Right. And they're like clamoring so hard to get an excuse of why there's people filming there. And right. uh, what we yeah. do in Shadows never like never addressed that fully. And I appreciate that because it's kind of a sort of uh, remark on those films as well. Right. And I think the reality is if that we were living in a universe where vampires were real, this would totally have happened. I mean, people will make a documentary about literally anything oh, <laughs> and they, they don't need much of an excuse to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and particularly if the vampires were, there's a lot of, um, in this film, uh, and th this kind of maybe even goes back to White Wolf 2, <laughs> B-Boy and the Masquerade, but it's very important to the vampires that they keep their secrecy and keep their privacy and don't get, outed basically uh, yeah, so absolutely. in a society in a world where vampires are real and they're highly secretive i mean that would be a major get for a documentarian <laughs> like to but the they, point where you would take the kind of ridiculous risk where, that they do take in filming this um, but they're also like not secretive enough so that any documentary crew would be able to find out about them right right and, and that in in and of itself is a sort of running joke throughout the film where people will be like well yeah, you know we need it's really important that you not like break our circle of privacy or a circle of trust and they're like there's a fucking film crew right there you know <laughs> uh yeah. and that i thought that that joke worked for me uh and i as a documentary um one thing that I didn't like or totally buy about Black Pond is how poorly or incompletely integrated the pseudo documentary parts were to the rest of the film into the rest of the film. I that was one of my gripes about the film was that it was this weird mix of there were some like office style style like recorded uh documentary interviews with the characters right where they were like clearly being interviewed by someone and they were giving those kind of responses uh and the rest of the film was um was purely dramatic in the way it was structured a bunch of scenes with these characters interacting um but <laughs> the way it was structured there was it wasn't like those scenes were supposed to be reenactments it wasn't like the documentary crew was supposed to be present during those scenes so the entire the documentary thing was just a framing device and it was a very loose and kind of awkward framing device whereas in this film i think the documentary the mockumentary format is used really well it's used really well from a comedic standpoint in that they ring just about every joke they possibly can out of the presence of the camera crew oh, i would agree with that <laughs> and it's I also would definitely agree with that it's also just well integrated in terms of the structure of the film 
it's actually structured very much like a documentary where they give you a kind of a teaser about where it's going in the beginning and then it does end up in that place uh, and it, it just it's shot very much like a documentary too it never like the camera is often a little behind the action like something starts to happen and the camera moves you know like <laughs> oh shit something's going on you know <laughs> which is like a major no-no in dramatic film where the camera is supposed to be ahead of what's going on right but which is a necessity of documentaries where the cameraman is in theory responding to real events uh so that and i think I think that helped a lot with the with the lower budget that this film had too, because it let them kind of skirt around some of those big budget moments and still have them happen somehow. Exactly, exactly. I think that's a great point, B-Boy. I totally agree with you on that because that, it really does. One of the one of the great fundamental problems of horror films. Um, and, and I'm not going to be the first, like no one's, no one's going to be hearing this from me for the first time. But is the is the fundamental fact that like the monsters always look cheesy given enough light and exposure, right? Even the best CGI in the world, even the most sophisticated computer graphics, it, it still usually fails at making something look legitimately terrifying. Uh, and often they end up looking cheesy or quirky or just weird and, and funny. Absolutely. And so a lot of uh, horror films get around this problem. Well, the, the stupider horror films, the worst horror films, don't even try to get around that problem. They're just like, I've got, I've got fifty dollars and I've got, uh, I've got, you know, some computer graphics rendering software on my, I've got Daz 3D on my computer and we're yeah, going to make this yeah. work and we're going to show it in its full glory. Uh, but a, a slightly more sophisticated. Well, I mean, my, my God, there's a, there's a six movie series titled the ginger dead man. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's at least six or seven evil bong movies out there right now. I mean, some of these horror films, they don't even try anymore. <laughs> right. They're more, they're more, they're like a mix between horror and parody, but they succeed at neither. Exactly. They're not scary and they're not funny, really. <laughs> Except in the like, maybe exactly. you've taken a few hits from that bong that you just, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe then it becomes well, I mean, funny. My, and, and then you start to crave my, the ginger dead man, but. The Ginger uh, Dead Man is voiced by Gary Busey. You're going to have a scarier <laughs> horror film just putting Gary Busey on the screen for two hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, boy this is why, and I do want to come back to this, but this is why I wanted you on this episode, because I don't watch horror films. AJ watches, like, three-minute, you know, YouTube videos that are... <laughs> <laughs> that are supposed to be scary, you know. <laughs> but at least you watch actual horror films, so you've got a frame of reference. Oh yeah, I, 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 oh, I love them. AJ I love them and yet I hate them at the same time <laughs> because they never seem to deliver what I want them to deliver. Right, right, yeah, exactly, and that's the failing of most horror films. I just want to go back. I just want to make fun of AJ some more. <laughs> <laughs> Like if you, if you if you know what if if you uh, if you were to say to AJ like what's a horror film the first thing she's going to imagine is like three minutes 
of a 90s television midnight test pattern that at the end of it, it, go, it, goes, it goes increasingly pixelated over and staticky over the course of the three minute running time. And at the end of it, someone screams. No, no, no. Oh. God damn it. My idea of a horror film is like 17 seconds of some animated alien thing with weird long legs crawling on a building, okay? Right. That's presented as truth. So anyway, I mean, I'm not knocking that. Honestly, that's a lot more effective. And it's a lot easier for horror to be effective in smaller doses. And And it's kind of a sad statement to the state of the genre that these jump scare YouTube videos are better at delivering an actual moment of terror than big budget, big studio backed productions. Right. Exactly. And, and, and certainly also at conveying not just like that, you know, fear, but also that general sense of like unease. Exactly. And that, that like, percolating sense of horror that is almost totally absent from horror films today and that you really need to go back to like Hitchcock and um and and a lot of and b-boy is going to cringe when I say this but older Japanese horror films uh in order to recapture no I actually enjoy some of the older Japanese horror films it's it's more the modern ones that wind up remade by American studios Mm -hmm. like The Grudge and The Ring where it's just, all right, we're just going to paint this child a ghostly white, give them stringy <laughs> black hair, dump a bucket of water on them, and have them go do something creepy off in the background. Yeah. You I know, I it's hate just such the, the ring. I saw The Ring for the first time when I was in high school, and I, I, I think it was just kind of pivotal moment moment for me as someone who like <laughs> appreciates or doesn't appreciate films like I think that was the moment something when some switch went off in my head and I realized exactly what it it got my first real inkling of what it was that made a film good or bad because there's so much superficially in the ring that is cool and that, like, yes. if yes. you're a person, like, it, it, it would be very easy as, like, someone who just enjoyed shit movies to enjoy The Ring because it's a good-looking film. Uh, those, like, the, the film within – now I'm reviewing The Ring. But the, the like, <laughs> video within the film that they watch that, like, summons the, the ghost child uh, is – actually pretty well put together i think aj would appreciate it as like uh as like an aesthetic montage of scary looking images but the movie itself is dog shit of the highest caliber it's plotted in a really idiotic way the concept is stupid none of the characters act like rational human beings the dialogue is atrocious everything that makes a film a good film is missing and everything that uh assembly line filmmakers uh, think makes a good horror film is present in excess. <laughs> well, and that's, that's kind of the plague of the genre right now is it's all style and no substance. Right. They, they have all the flash and all the visuals. They've got all of that lined up the way they want it. 
but they can't actually deliver something solid behind that. Right, absolutely. Right. And so, to get back to to get back to what we do in the shadows, they actually deliver on what they were trying to do with their style. Right. And I think that was what I enjoyed most about the movie. Right. And let's I, I think what I want to do is since we've been talking about horror films, let's talk about the movie as a horror movie, and then let's talk about it as a comedy. I know it is a comedy first and foremost. First and foremost, I mean, it's certainly more a comedy than a horror film, but since it is dealing with vampires, and since it's kind of adjacent to the horror genre, and since we just spent the last... 10 minutes talking about other horror films. I feel like we should pay that off in some way. So how did you feel about this oh, as a horror film? Uh, I think it was actually more effective than a lot of movies have been lately. Um, they had the gore. This was a scary the gore. Movie. The gore effects were terrible, but they <laughs> had them. Right. Um, would I call it a scary movie? No. Oh. But at the same time, there are elements that certainly would have applied mm. in a scary movie. Obviously, we can't go into details at this stage, right. but there were flashes where you could see definite indications that these vampires are no joke, even in a film that's really just one big, long-running joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. AJ. I think that um, I think that it had a really effective undertone. Um, it wasn't it wasn't intended to be a horror movie, mm. and I think like it didn't unintentionally become a horror movie. But right. it was um, it was part of they wanted to make it like they wanted to remind you that these are you know vampires and you know they're actually killing people you know right and right they were good at like keeping that reminder through the film which i appreciated like vastly so i think that it wasn't it wasn't like a horror movie but it was like people like brandon said <laughs> it was um it was serious in a way underneath all of the comedy yeah i think it doesn't shy away from the reality of the, the, well the reality i mean nobody <laughs> is actually a vampire but it doesn't yeah. share away from what the reality of being a vampire would be if, if that makes any sense like it it's not afraid for the most part of its of exploring the darker side of its own concept you know it doesn't a lot of superficially um a, a lot of horror parodies 
don't really like they either go one way or another with like to one extreme or the other like they go whole hog on the gore <laughs> and that mm -hmm. becomes the one joke that becomes a, or it becomes a huge part of the jokes right or they like totally neuter the monster they to the point where it's like just goofy yeah. just silly and that's what you're supposed to laugh at how silly this vampire is or at how silly this you know Frankenstein knockoff is or, or whatever this movie um to its to its benefit doesn't isn't afraid of either of those extremes and doesn't totally commit itself to either of those extremes like it makes no effort to make it makes no effort to avoid the sillier stupider parts of vampire mythology but it also doesn't feel the need to yuck it up to an extreme degree and it also right. doesn't really totally throw itself like into the blood and gore thing to absolute excess but it's also certainly not afraid of that and it's certainly not afraid of oh, the no, fact that no. these vampires as aj says are they're killing people they're murdering human beings yeah. and, it and it doesn't really try to make excuses for their behavior either uh, but it also doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really condemn their behavior, which is an interesting um, place. No, to it's, be. it's a very unapologetic take on the concept. Right. It's uh, very. They tightly weren't afraid to show that. Yeah, sorry. They weren't afraid to show that these these vampires are, by their very nature, violent creatures. Uh. <laughs> and at the same time, they have one of the most bizarre casts <laughs> possible for such violent creatures. Yeah. Because these characters, especially uh, Viago, mm -hmm. you would never see violence in that character. No, no. Just to look at the character himself and, and the whole concept of that of the that, Victorian that dandy. dandy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, to have a character like that and then to, you know, have that reminder that, oh, shit this is a vampire it has to kill people in order to stay not alive but you know in order to continue existing i think that was actually a very very effective aspect of it right and one thing i liked and this is getting a little bit away from the film as a horror film is that when you get to those moments where they're trying to feed and they're trying to figure out how to feed uh mm -hmm. it, those moments could have been like played up for horror they could have been scary or they could have been made like goofy like you know like oh he flies in through the window and he hits his head on a beam and then he says something in his goofy romanian accent you know which is how it yeah, usually yeah. works right when they're doing a horror parody it's like or he can't get out of bat form or something and he's like, oops <laughs> you know but what's wonderful about this film though is that those scenes aren't scary and they're not really silly they're just profoundly awkward yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that profound yeah. awkwardness is just so much funnier than if it was played for yucks yeah i really appreciated how mundane they made all these moments with these fantastical beings as vampires they made them seem like you know oh this is life this is how it is and but i think that was in a very awkward way as well yeah yeah where you're like you feel it during the scene and it makes it absolutely hilarious 
Right, it, it's Schadenfreude, right? You, you you would cringe, but you you laugh instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I liked how even during some of these awkward moments, they would pan the camera to the other characters that are present and not directly involved in the awkwardness <laughs> and have them just standing there awkwardly reacting to what the hell is going on in front of them. Like, oh, here we go. He got us into another fucking mess this time. Right, right. Which is another great mockumentary technique, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing about the movie as a horror film, I agree it's not a scary movie. Uh, there's one sequence in the movie, and I'm not going to scare. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it. Maybe we can talk about it in the spoiler inclusive part of the podcast. But there is one sequence in the movie that almost gets scary, uh, but it also doesn't cease to be hilarious. And it's this wonderful. I almost wish there were more sequences like that one in the movie because it's this wonderful like tightrope act where you're like one minute you're like, <gasps> and the next minute you're like, oh my god. And it, it's yeah. just real, like up and down, back and forth between like cringing and laughing and being a little bit worried and scared. And then, <laughs> um, yeah. But aside from that, there aren't really many scary moments in the film, including no. um, uh, later in the film. But and I would also like to touch on it because it is in the description of of the movie itself that there are werewolves. There are werewolves in this, werewolves, in this movie yeah. universe as well. And I actually have to touch on this because for me, werewolves are one of my favorite movie monsters. And right. that's another one of those Schadenfreude moments for me because there are so few decent, watchable werewolf movies out there. <laughs> right, right. Almost all of them are just absolute dog shit right and a lot of that comes down to the actual monster suits right that are used for the werewolves i was actually impressed <laughs> with what they were able to do with the werewolf suits in this movie on a budget that was probably cobbled together from the shoestrings of everybody that played a speaking part in the film <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, the visual effects in this movie are not bad. Like you, like no. we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of clever evasions in place. Um, in this case, they don't. I think what I, I think I kind of got sidetracked from that. But what they do most of the time is they show. You know, it's like they'll shoot things in the dark, and they only reveal a certain amount of the monster, and that builds up suspense, and that builds up fear. Mm -hmm. uh, in this film, they use the documentary um, structure of the film to be able to show things kind of fuzzy, grainy, out of focus. The camera gets there later. We're not really looking at this thing because the cameraman's not really looking at it. But when you do get glimpses of the monsters, whether it's the werewolves as werewolves or the vampires in bat form or another particularly hilarious visual effect that I'm not going to mention because oh, it would be, I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Because it would be a too. spoiler and it would ruin a joke. <laughs> um, it works. Uh, I mean, it, you don't think, oh, that's cheesy CGI. You buy it to some degree. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, to me, in a lot of ways, the horror and the scary, not necessarily scary, but the horror elements of the film reminded me a lot of watching the evil dead for the first time when mm -hmm. I was younger. 
um, which any horror film buff is going to know the Evil Dead right off the bat. But, you know, Bruce Campbell movies that were one of the first films made by Sam Raimi, they made them fresh. They made the first film fresh out of college on a twenty thousand dollar budget back in the early eighties, and it stood the test of time and became this huge cult classic. Much a horror comedy that did manage to go way over the top with the gore, but they stayed over the top with the comedy as well, and they balanced the two very nicely. Yeah. And for me, this film did a lot of the same things but it was a much more subdued way of doing it. Yeah, and much more like understated. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So, and that's a good uh, segue into this movie as a comedy, uh, which is obviously what it's aiming to be and what it, I think, succeeds handily at. Absolutely. One thing, my, I, I think my favorite thing about this movie is that it's not afraid to show and to really dig into just how lame vampires actually are. <laughs> like, <laughs> th- th- once again, there j- tends to be this dichotomy in horror films and in vampire films between, um, you know, your straight-faced, dramatic horror films. And they really want vampires. They are obsessed with the idea that vampires are cool as shit. (laughs) Like they think vampires are just the raddest fucking thing on planet Earth. And you can tell. And whether they play that up in the Twilight style by making them like cute boys, you know, and cute immortal boys who shimmer or whatever the fuck it is, or whether they play it up in the style of like Blade where like, you know, he's, he's, He's a half vampire ninja. <laughs> He's got big guns and he has a sword and he cuts up vampires with swords and he wears a cool leather jacket and and all of that. And and every vampire he fights is like this quasi Nosferatu looking motherfucker who would like bangs and like wearing a biker jacket. <laughs> and you know it's oh, like yeah. It's like wow, and you're supposed to, you know, if you're fucking 16 years old, you're like, that's that's fucking rad, that's amazing, holy shit, Blade is so cool, and all the vampires are so cool, or even if it's a more traditional kind of Dracula take, the idea is, well, let's make the vampire as sophisticated as possible. You know, this is a suave kind of ladies' man vampire, and he's the coolest guy in the room, or, you know, and he's also really dangerous. You know, and um, then the the other extreme, as I said, if you're doing a horror parody film, the vampire is just going to be silly and goofy or whatever. But they, they and the idea is, oh, that he's like it's like silly. But they've never never before have I seen a film go so completely deep in the idea that vampires aren't really particularly silly; they're just lame. And antiquated and out of touch with society. And if you've met a vampire on the street, you met a dude who's fucking 600 years old. He's not going to know how to dress. I mean, <laughs> you know, like think of your own grandparents, right? Who maybe are 80 years old. And just like, um, have you ever had to show an old person how to use like a computer? <laughs> Uh, well, 
let's see. I, I work in I work in retail. Yeah. And we have photo kiosks. And uh, yeah, on a daily basis, I get to witness that exact same thing. Of, <laughs> and the only people who use photo kiosks are old people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, because all the normal people usually just send things online to the store to have it printed. Right. You know, if people even print Or they have anymore. a photo printer or they, they just right. keep a digital copy of it in their digital photo album and on their phone and on Google yeah, Photos. Exactly. In the exactly. cloud, you know? Um but it, it, that or yeah. like the uh, you reach a point where your opinions don't change very much your sense of style doesn't change very much your willingness to adapt to a changing world atrophies and you become lame oh and, yeah absolutely and, and vampires on top of that like lameness that comes from their them being so old and out of touch is just a natural lameness that comes with vampirehood and all of her expectations about vampires like if you think about vampire fashion which is something this movie lifts on to no end if you really think about oh, it in, in just absolute beautiful fashion no less <laughs> they they really they really hit some high notes with that in this film yeah that was and i think we'll talk about that more in the second half so we can be more specific about it because there's some real standouts there right and i'm sure we will but if you think about it absent like a costume designer if you have the general generally the same sense of like uh you know style as vampires do you're gonna look pretty stupid (laughs) <laughs> you look like with these these oh, yeah. ruffled yeah. shirts and the the weird like it's just you know so and, and the movie really well, I think that's something that usually yeah like kind of gets dismissed too because like you said most films focus on trying to portray vampires as being just you know the coolest dude in the room right and thematically, the way they usually do that is, oh, well, we'll just take this time period. That's when he's from. And then they look at the absolute best of yeah, as right. far as the style goes for that era. Like if they're talking, if they're talking medieval Europe, they're going to put the guy in, you know, leather boots, leggings and uh, a loose billowy shirt. And it looks cool. It, there's a certain flow to that. Right. It looks cool for a couple but, of reasons. One, as you said, because of the, the – this is professional costume design. And also all right. of the other characters in the universe are dressed the same way, just worse. Uh, right. But also because of the casting, right? Because the vampire is always – the person cast to play the vampire is always some really sophisticated guy or some really – He's either some pretty boy or he's a really right. kind of Michael Fassbender, sort of muscular, imposing presence. Yeah. Or he's got yeah. that kind of Al Pacino in his prime sort of natural like authority and charisma to him. They don't usually cast people like these guys. And when you see these oh, yeah, guys no, no. dressed that way, it, the whole thing occupies this just wonderful space between their perception of how cool they are because they're fucking vampires. I must be right. Like at one yeah, point that's that stated outright, like we're sexy. We're vampires. 
<laughs> between that yeah. perception and the reality of just how silly and lame they look, like this movie thrives in this vacuum between those two spaces, between those two points. You it know? does, it does. And and I think it kind of raises a good point in a way too, without directly raising it, that if you think about I'm actually going to go into this from a if vampires were real standpoint. If you really That's why think you're about here, it, B-boy. <laughs> yeah, if you really think about it, you look throughout history yeah. and vampires are always portrayed as, you know, oh, well, they were nobility before they were turned. You know, they were these high-ranking people in society. No, motherfucker, they had guards. They yeah, had right? people Who can the vampire get them. to? Yeah. Vampires aren't just going to waltz into a castle and bite the king. That's not that's not how this is going to happen. The vampires are going to pick off the dregs of society. They're going to pick off the people that are drunk in an alleyway somewhere and they're going to say, "You know what? There's something wrong with you. We're going to take you." Right. Vampires are predators. They don't right. go after they don't go after the healthy. They don't go after the strong unless they're desperate. They're going to go after the weak. They're going to go after the vulnerable. They're going to go after the targets. And I think this film does a good job of portraying that. And I think you really oh, hit the, the nail on the head with Predator. I mean, these vampires come across as this weird mix between, like, uh, you know, like Woody Allen-esque neurotics and predatory animals. And I think it really finds a great sweet spot yeah, there between yeah. acknowledging the fact that their whole lifestyle is sort of inherently animalistic, inherently like tied to the pet. And this is true of the werewolves as well, but inherently tied to the patterns. Uh, and, and in part, because that's sort of where the folklore gets inspiration from, but tied to the patterns of nocturnal predators but on the other hand, they're Absolutely. also these sort of sad sack people trying to survive with, you know, with, with intelligence, with personalities, trying to survive to some degree both in human society and cloistered away from human society and all of that stuff. Like the movie keeps all of those balls in the air in a remarkably impressive way. I mean, there's a surprisingly large amount going on here considering that it is fundamentally – a sort of goofy horror mockumentary. Yeah, and I like the fact that early on in the film they kind of touch on how many vampires there are in this city. And right, that's, and it's that's a surprisingly large about considering how small the city is. Yeah, well, it's another one of those points where I kind of that kind of made me think, okay, there's some White Wolf influence going on here because White Wolf always kind of estimated what a population can support as oh, far as I having see. vampires in them. That was one of the things that they always featured in their little city building discussions was, all right, so you so see like thousand people. Yeah, it's an ecosystem, exactly. If you have an, assuming the vampires are like the apex predator in that ecosystem, right. you can only support so many of them. Exactly. And I thought that they did a really good job of doing that, especially with some of the oddballs that they just kind of come across as they're walking down the streets yeah, and kind of pointing out like, okay, hey, I know this one, I know this one. <laughs> right. It, I thought that was a nice little touch. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that was one of the better moments in the movie. 
Uh, AJ, do you want to talk about the movie as a comedy at all? Um, I I would agree with all the previously made points. Wow, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> also, we should probably get on to the second half. If okay, okay, okay. Here all night. Well, we need to do our reviews of the film first, so we can do yes. that. Uh, so uh, nobody does anyone else have anything they want to talk about broadly? You know, any thematically or whatever. I think I'm pretty good on that. Good. Okay. AJ. I'm good. Okay. So AJ, you picked the film. Why don't you give your review first? Okay. I uh, I would like to say that this movie is extremely enjoyable to watch. Um, it's not irritating. It's not particularly. Um, it's not particularly profound. It's definitely not extremely scary, but it's um, a wonderful way to spend an hour and a half, and you'll probably enjoy it. So you should definitely watch it. And, and your score? <laughs> my score, I would give it um, probably 9 out of 10 vultures. Okay. B-Boy? Uh, well, I I definitely uh, I appreciated a lot of what they did in the movie. I think they they used the tools that they had to their fullest. Um, it's not a particularly fast-paced movie, so if if you're someone that's looking to just have a movie suck you right in, mm -hmm. this probably isn't it. This is one that you really got to kind of focus to. Uh, to really settle in and watch. Um, but I would probably give it at least, probably, I'll say seven vultures out of ten. Seven out of ten. Ah, you, you betrayed <laughs> me. You're going with AJ's <laughs> ten vulture system. It's supposed to be a five vulture <laughs> system. Uh, Brandon's on my side. No. <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I, I really want to say I fucking hated this movie. Uh, just so that, somewhat, so that we can keep the tradition going with someone hating AJ's movies. But I think you can tell from what I said before that I actually really enjoyed this movie. One thing that I don't think we stressed enough is this is a really fucking funny film. Like it is. Alliterate all alliteration aside. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> um, this is. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker! We're um, oh, on a roll tonight. This is this is a this is a hilarious movie. It really is. I mean, um, the vast vast majority of the jokes land. A lot of them will make you laugh out loud, and the jokes that might not land are all pretty innocuous and not obnoxious, which I think is as AJ said too. Like some comedies, the jokes that don't land, you're like, oh God, it's uncomfortable, you know? But this movie, it's very kind of genial film. You know, it's very, it's very easy to like this movie, very easy to enjoy this movie. And when it gets on a roll, it really works. It It, it is very funny. Um, the jokes, this is a movie I would definitely watch again. And I'm not someone 
I'm not a big comedy person, and I'm not someone who will watch a comedy twice <laughs> usually, but I would definitely watch this one twice because I know there are jokes I missed. Mm -hmm. And I know there were things going on in the background. I know there were things going on sort of out of frame. I know there were lines that had implications, you know, kind of that arrested development syndrome where you know you're not getting all of it. And you want to go back and watch it again and see which jokes you missed. And that's the kind of comedy I really love is that sort of layered, uh, layered comedy. So I, I definitely really enjoyed it. I think that this is probably not that there's that much competition outside of like the original Nosferatu, but this is probably the best vampire movie I've seen. This is probably the best horror comedy that I've seen. Once again, not much competition there. Um, AJ is good at picking movies. <laughs> Yeah, well, you, you, you can talk once you're right. You, right now, you're one and three, so you can talk when <laughs> when you get your record up there. I believe I'm three for three, AJ. Nobody has given any film that I've picked an even mildly negative review. So just putting that out there, not not to brag, but you started bragging first, so I'm going to... Anyway, th this is a... This is a... <laughs> Wait, well, Brandon, you wait until you pick movies, okay? Uh, well, I mean, honestly, there's also an argument to be made for picking films that you don't even necessarily like very much that you think would call, would stir an interesting conversation, which I think is what Sarah does. Mm. Because Sarah has, in some cases, not liked the films that she picked. <laughs> been pretty brutal even to the films that she picked, but there's always been an interesting conversation. Anyway... Back to what we do in the shadows. This is just like as a vampire movie, I really appreciated the just dedication to the source material. Uh, it's just it it just it it it's a lot smarter than you would think this movie was going to be if you just read a synopsis of it and it was like this vampire mockumentary. Like okay, uh, this quirky vampire mockumentary. Uh, it actually is way smarter, and it digs a lot deeper. And it even – it's not a deep, deep, deep movie, particularly compared to some of the other movies we've reviewed on this podcast. But it also doesn't, for the most part, really shy away from – the philosophical implications of eternal life or the moral implications of having to feed on intel other intelligent mm -hmm. creatures to survive. It's not afraid of those things. And it also doesn't moralize either, which is great. It's not like, it's not shaking its fist at the vampires, but it's also a little bit, it's also not afraid to really confront the implications of what, the implications of their lifestyle. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I would all of that considered, I would give this four out of five vultures. Okay, so that's it for the reviews. Uh, after this point, if you're still listening and you have not seen the movie, my recommendation is you pause this podcast and you go watch the movie. If you're an Amazon Prime subscriber. This is actually free with Amazon Video, so you could just 
open it up in another browser window right now and watch it and come back to the podcast. If you're I not, I highly recommend Amazon, doing that. <laughs> yeah, and if you, but if you don't like the, if you you listen to our reviews and you don't think you're going to be interested in the film, and for some reason you're interested in hearing us talk about it for another half an hour or so. You can just stick around. If you don't mind spoilers, even in a comedy, if you don't mind having your jokes ruined for you in advance, you can stick around too. Okay, so let's dive a little deeper into the film here. Um, how do we want to broach this? Uh, I'm sorry, AJ, what was that? We could go over favorite scenes. Sure. Why don't you get us started? Yeah, All right. Well, one of my favorite scenes is when, um, oh, actually, first we should talk about Stu, I think. Talk, oh, yeah. We didn't mention Stu at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you want to talk about, Stu? Stu well, mentioning Stu would have led into spoilers of other parts of the story. Yeah. That we right. kind of agreed we weren't going to go over because he right, is right. A, he's kind of a later act character. Right, and we didn't talk about Nick even obliquely in the uh, in the introduction. Yeah, yeah. but which when you've got to talk about Nick, you're going to talk about Stu. Right. <laughs> so if you haven't seen the movie and you're just listening to give you some orientation here, uh, Nick is an individual who is converted to vampirism about a quarter of the way into the movie. Basically, he's a would-be victim who ends up in the ends up being turned into a vampire by Peter, who's the original vampire, the Nosferatu vampire, instead of ending up as a meal for the other vampires. And he has this kind of awkward transition into vampirism. Vampirism? Vampirism? I don't know. Vampiricism? <laughs> um, the first two both work. The third one, not so much. <laughs> I want to do a vampirical analysis of this film. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but he, he's a he's a he becomes a vampire over the course of the film, and so he's a, part of the film. In a fantastic chase scene, might I add? In a, a fantastic chase scene. Yes, and I do want to talk about turned. that scene in detail later after we talk about yeah. Snow. Yeah. Snow, do <laughs> still, um, but. So anyway, and he, he a big chunk of the film is about his kind of awkward transition into becoming a full-fledged vampire. And he has this friend, Stu, who, who is his human friend, who he doesn't really want to give up when he becomes a vampire. So he brings Snoo, Stu in. I'm going to keep calling him Snoo for some reason. <laughs> he brings Stu into the, the flat and introduces him to all his vampire friends. And then after that, Stu is just kind of there. <laughs> <laughs> well, because Stu is a great guy. He's a great guy, yeah, apparently. I mean, he, he's he's useful. He's got skills. Right. Yep. Stu is everything Napoleon Dynamite wishes he could have been. <laughs> and, and Stu, it, it's kind of funny. I don't know why I'm a movie that I enjoyed to a movie I couldn't stand. But yeah, I found that movie is. incredibly abrasive. That is one of the, I just never understood. Yeah, no. Anyway, um... <laughs> It's, it's kind of funny because Stu becomes – you would think that Nick would be the one who – if this was following a kind of conventional 
uh, structure. Like the vampires would teach Nick how to be a vampire, and Nick would teach the vampires like how to survive in the modern world. He'd be the yeah, one that brings yeah. them out of their shell and gets them to, uh, you know, adapt to the modern world. Uh, pick up modern technology and, and so on and so forth. But instead it's Stu who becomes the one who shows them how to use Skype, who shows them how to use Facebook, who shows them how to use eBay, which leads to the one joke yeah. in the movie that yeah. I groaned at. And, and <laughs> the dark thing. Oh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I knew that when I saw that scene, I was like, oh, oh, Will is not going to like this. <laughs> But yeah, AJ, what did you want to say about Stu? Well, basically, one of my favorite scenes kind of stems from Stu teaching the vampires about technology. And um, he he's teaching Viago, like, he's getting Viago set up on Skype. And uh, Viago has, like, a former servant <clears throat> that he's reconnecting with on Skype. And they uh, go on a video call. And uh, his servant is like, his servant is very old and ecstatic to see him. He's again. 90. Yeah, he's 90. And he tells Viago, he's like, I, I did nothing with my life. I was waiting for you. I'm so glad to hear from you. I'm so excited that, you know. You're, you're gonna finally going to make me a vampire. Which, yeah. You're going to make the me promise. a vampire. <laughs> and, and Viago's like, um, I'm, I'm, oh, it was nice to see you. And then he just, like, hangs up and closes the laptop. <laughs> he, like, looks uh, at he's like, ugh, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a great scene. And that was awesome was. because, like, it, it was just, like, the delivery of, um, like, it was hilarious, but it was also, like, tinged with that, um, complete uneasiness and it was also completely awkward and it was yeah yeah it was yeah 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 it was sort of the quintessential awkward scene the kind of the quintessential sort of awkward humor that runs through the movie and one thing i liked about that scene was it was another instance where it's like uh, the movie really (laughs) digs into the impact that these vampires selfish choices are having on the humans around them mm-hmm. and that was that moment perhaps more than any you see this guy who's really he's devoted his whole life like completely to the idea that he's going to serve this guy and if he serves him he'll get to be a vampire someday and the vampire has totally forgotten about him pretty much i mean He's just totally moved on. And then the, the thought of like going back there and like, you know, having to sort that problem out. He's like, nah, fuck it. <laughs> not even gonna, oops, well, you know, well I mean, in, in Viago's defense, yeah. uh, his servant did pay the wrong postage. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so. And that did kind of fuck him in the long run. Well, Fantastic. not in the long run, but in the short run anyway. No. Yeah. It did kind of I thought that was his... another one of those fantastic little details where they, they mentioned that, you know, oh, the wrong postage was paid in shipping his coffin. Shipping his coffin, yeah. To New Zealand. Right. <laughs> you know, it could have just been such a throwaway joke. They could have just left it there. 
but they managed to bring it up in that moment, and it was just perfect. Right, and that it is... Was, it was one of those great little Chekhov's gun moments. <laughs> right, and not only that, but um, it's also a pretty clear reference to Nosferatu, uh, where there's a there's yeah. a whole elaborate where there's a whole sequence that involves Nos Nosferatu being shipped um, mm -hmm. from wherever his origin point is. Whether it's, I I, I want to say it's Romania, but I don't remember the movie very well. But there's a whole sequence that takes place on the ship that's about transferring his coffin to England, I believe, and that of course yeah. is not played for humor in in Nosferatu, but and also. The question of like, there's this whole thing about vampires and bodies of water and like, <laughs> and um, what they can and can't do. <laughs> so um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it was it was a pretty clear reference. It was just another little detail that ties into both the film history of vampires and also into vampire folklore. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, they had they had some really nice hidden gems as far as making those references. Um, one of my favorite scenes, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the costuming, was that scene very early on where the three main vampires are getting <laughs> ready to go out and they're trying to figure out what to wear and they're drawing sketches of each other. <laughs> yes, because they can't see each other in the mirror. Because they, yeah, because they can't see their own reflections. And the sketches are so bad. <laughs> oh, they're just terrible. And then when Stu really shows great. up, and then when Stu arrives and <laughs> Nick arrives, and they see cell phones and cameras, and they realize, wait a second, we could have been taking pictures this whole time. <laughs> right, right. So the one thing that I really like about Stu, and this goes back to what we were talking about with uh, Viago's servant, is he's the perfect encapsulation of that, like, the running toll that they're having on the lives of human beings around them. It's really great that they brought a real honest-to-goodness human into this thing and had them get attached to him, even if kind of as a pet. Because then we start yeah. to see, like, now you have a human in this situation uh, that you know is just inherently dangerous for him. And they're all so nonchalant about it. It's funny because you, as an audience member, realize that, like, Stu is in, like, serious mortal danger every second of this film. But they're like, hey, it's Stu! We decided not to eat him, <laughs> you know? Which leads to that really, like, great sequence when he's at the ball. And they've gotten just so used to Stu being around. It's like, hey, it's Stu! He's a... And then they realize, oh, shit! <laughs> you know, there's oh, yeah, all these that, other vampires here and other undead and other like supernatural beings who are neatly hostile to humans oh you're and so warm wanna... are you a demon yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're gonna want to eat still and it's like and they had just gotten so used to stooping around <laughs> that they totally forgot that you know it didn't cross their mind just like all like just like the toll that their behavior is having on all these other human minds, human lives just doesn't seem to cross their mind, you know? I feel that it's also important to mention that 
Stu doesn't really have that much of a character <laughs> beyond being that, you know, human pet, really. Right. <laughs> like, well, yeah, he's, uh, he's kind of the fly on the wall. Right. But he, he plays it so well. I absolutely love how the actor plays it yeah. in this yeah. film. He plays it really well. But, like, um, basically, like, the, the vampires and even Nick, like, who was, you know, apparently like one of his best friends when he was uh, before he was a vampire like they'll just talk to him and still be like oh yeah yep <laughs> you know and uh basically you know he's there for them to like uh basically he's there as like a tool but also you know a, a friend but he has no character and right that's just one of the best things about Stu is that you know he's yeah He's just like there, <laughs> and he's a great guy. Well, yeah, I think that's. I think that's another example of how well this movie did at maximizing what they had to work with, and really doing some great minimalist filmmaking. Right. Because I think Stu was one of the more effective characters in the movie, and like you said, there really wasn't much to him. Right. Well, and I think. I think that's part of what makes him so appealing to them. Right, yeah. Is he's like the quintessential uh blank canvas, you know? Or the it, basically he the, I mean the the thing with the cell phones and stuff is kind of the perfect encapsulation of his character because he's the mirror that they actually can see themselves in, right? Because he's such a just such an empty kind of go along shell who they who will feed their ideas back to them and kind of just like just like help them and support them without having a personality of his own. Um mm -hmm. And since they're so deeply egotistical, uh, <laughs> you know, it, that's perfect. That's the perfect thing. Oh, yeah. It really does yeah. become like a mirror that they can see themselves in. And I thought that was a great little touch. So uh, above and beyond Stu, any specific, anything else people want to talk about? Oh, uh, let, let's talk about Vladislav. <laughs> okay. That's an appropriate visual cue that I, I don't think the audience is going to get to see, but um, that chase scene that I mentioned. Yes. They let's had talk said about that early scene. on with Vladislav that he was able to change into all these different animals, yeah. but he couldn't quite get the faces right. <laughs> and <laughs> there's that one moment in the chase scene where they do so many jump cuts and, and, they showcase some, some of these little things that the vampires can do. And all of a sudden you just see this cat sitting there with Vladislav's face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great moment of both yeah. like humor and horror. That's one of the few oh, moments, yeah. moments in the movie that's legitimately like hilarious and scary at the same time. Uh, and of course that, and I was actually surprised by how good the effect looked. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. But, like, in a bad way. In a bad way. Like, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> or how bad it looked in a good way? Yeah, exactly. I, I However right. you want to approach yeah. that, both of those work, yeah. I suppose. Um, and it also is another one of these great callbacks to folklore and to these – I mean, they even show the old medieval drawings of the – 
the animals with human faces and stuff. And that's something that doesn't get referenced in vampire movies, probably because it's so silly, (laughs) but it's just wonderful the way it plays out and what the way it's, it's the way it's placed right in the middle of that one legitimately tense kind of scary sequence in the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And that that and that really is a, it, that sequence, the way it's shot, and the way it's like almost a kind of house of literal sort of house of horrors thing, where like he opens different doors and he sees the, he opens one, and like one of the vampires is eating that girl that was also at the dinner party, and he opens another, and he sees Vlad with the cat with the you know Vlad is the cat with the human face, and and then he like runs outside, and Peter grabs him, mm-hmm. and the whole way Which that was a plays fantastic out. jump scare. Yeah, yeah. Because Peter is the one legitimately scary-looking vampire in this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that Nosferatu callback right. visual design that they did with the Peter character was just fantastic. And I'm glad that they didn't overplay the Peter character. Yeah. Like, I'm glad that he had such a minimal role in the yeah. film. I think that really was for the best because that would have been such a huge detriment if they had overdone yeah. the Nosferatu in a mockumentary like this. And it would have been really bad if they had decided, let's give him dialogue. The fact that they yeah. don't give him any dialogue. Yeah. And the uh, with, those, hissing. with those teeth right. in his mouth, I can only right. imagine what it would have sounded like had he tried to speak. Right. <laughs> and the fact that he they... they at one point say that he's 8,000 years old, which implies that he's some kind like he's some kind of entirely different thing. Some kind of like ancient evil or something, you know, it goes back to like biblical times and, um, that he, he remains unknowable and legitimately monstrous, which is one of the great features of the Nosferatu style vampires. And one of the reasons Nosferatu as a movie works so much better than a lot of, contemporary vampire films the fact that they knew that and didn't didn't shy away from that and also didn't like feel the need to make him funny except in the way that like all scary things are also funny (laughs) yeah well in a way i think they almost i think he was almost one of the most effective hidden jokes in the entire film too yeah. Because you think about it, eight thousand year old, incredibly powerful vampire. Why is he living in these three <laughs> douchebags' basement? Right, right. <laughs> you you wonder actually if he's not sort of senile. <laughs> yeah. You know, because why does he decide to, that Nick would like, Nick like, of all fucking people would make a great vampire? You know, and yeah. he doesn't really. Like, is this is this grandpa in the home? Like. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And he came with one of the other. Which one is it, Viago or Vlad? Uh, who he Deacon. It was Deacon that he turned. Oh, it's Deacon. Okay, so yeah. he came with Deacon, and you get the sense that this is sort of like Deacon's grandpa, who he's just bringing around with him. You know, mm-hmm. he's just like because Deacon just when he decided to move to New Zealand, he just brought him along. Oh, and that's a yeah. joke that I I forgot that the Deacon who <laughs> who was oh, yeah. both a vampire and a Nazi, <laughs> and there's that great <laughs> sequence where he's like after the war, you know, it was tough to be a Nazi. And it was tough to be a vampire, but damn, it was really tough to be a vampire. And a Nazi. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, just forget it. Get out of the country. Right. And, oh. and so he just took Peter along with him. And, Peter, you know, and, and that's interesting. The weird way where, like, at one point he's this almost senile pet. And the other uh, – on one hand, he's this almost senile sort of pet or grandfather figure or whatever. that They all sort of seem to have this re sort of reverence for but clearly don't think of as being totally all there or at least not communicative. But on the other oh. hand, he's also – apparently this great sort of power like he, he's like the head vampire right he and this right. sort of like terrible unknowable force like and the way that the, even the vampires like even those three douchebags are like kind of scared of him kind of scared of him yeah even though they also like you know uh, like there was such a great theme. family or whatever yeah, like that that intro scene where Viago is going through the house and yes, waking exactly. everybody up. Yes. That was such a such a great lead in, especially when you got to Peter and you see this giant concrete box in the basement, <laughs> and he slides it open to throw a chicken in a bag in there. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole time he's like, "It's it's kind of a mess down here. Uh, what would you think if I got you a broom?" <laughs> 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 and it's like, Maybe oh, it's spinal column. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I just stepped in it. And, and Viago <laughs> is so fussy, and that adds so much oh. to some of the scenes, I thought. Oh, yeah, definitely. Kind of fussy vampire living with them. The scene where he lays the newspaper out under the woman that he's getting prepared to bite. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, especially after the, after the call out earlier, where he's says to I think it was I think he said it to Deacon, if you're going to eat someone on the couch, can you at least put a towel down first? Right, right. <laughs> and then of course punctures the main artery and she bleeds all over the oh, place. Yeah. And there's that oh, great yeah. kind of gross out laugh there. But it's made all the more better because of the character it happens to. Yes. You know? Yeah. Because he's this fastidious, fussy kind of character. To have it happen to him is so much more funny than having it happen to Deacon or and then yeah. the follow-up of him saying, so, yeah, something went wrong with that. <laughs> the main artery, it's a mess in there. <laughs> and then it, like, it was just, it lingers it was just so on him. Perfect. It lingers on him for far too yeah. long for it to be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, that, uh, was, that was one of those great moments. So, any other joke scenes that you want to focus uh, on? How about the way that they played out this whole concept of Vladislav's great rival, the Beast? <laughs> the Beast! <laughs> <laughs> they made it sound exactly what you were hoping it would be. They made it sound different from what the actual payoff for the joke was <laughs> right and they did it in such a spectacular way right <laughs> and a way so in keeping because when they finally oh yeah yeah absolutely when when they finally get there it's just so great because you think okay so it's the beast we fought the beast on a cliff he fought the beast in a <laughs> cave he fought the beast in a bathroom at a bar <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then they reveal that it's his ex-girlfriend, and it's like, okay, now that last one makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. 
Right, exactly. Uh-huh. And and suddenly, what a joke that was funny on one level before takes on a new meaning and becomes oh, funny. Yeah. yeah. There are a few of those in there. Um, one as long as we're talking about jokes that like recurring jokes, I think my favorite recurring joke, and I didn't even really get it 100% until after the movie was over. But my favorite joke that really clicked in later was the Halloween costume joke. <laughs> and that and the thing that I love about that joke is you're expecting it to be one joke and it's a different joke. Yeah. Uh, it's like the offensive Halloween costume thing, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, what one time I I went as to the well, it's not Halloween, it's this you know monster mash basically. What, what was it? The unholy, what what was the name of the the, the uh, unholy masquerade? Yeah, something like that sounds right. But it's basically the, the monster mash, you know, and it's basically a Halloween costume party for people who already live their lives in costume. Um, but he's like, oh, yeah, I, I decided to go as Whoopi Goldberg in Sister Act. And you're expecting, uh-oh, like, <laughs> this, this is a 200-year-old vampire. Uh, uh. He's going to go as Whoopi Goldberg. And you're expecting the blackface joke, right? Because that's every every offensive Halloween costume. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is some, some idiot went to his Halloween party in blackface. And, not and only he's like, that, oh, it's Whoopi. Blackface, blackface oh, drag, no less. Right, exactly. And you're like, oh, okay, I know where this is going. And then it cuts, and it's, he's not in blackface at all. He's just wearing the nun's costume and the habit. And, and he's like, yeah, people got offended because vampires don't really like nuns, you know. We don't really get along with the Catholic Church. And they didn't even say in advance, like, yeah, I had an offensive Halloween costume to set up the joke. It's like it's just playing on your natural expectations. And yeah. then that joke comes back again with Blade. And Wesley Snipes, yeah. and it's like, yeah. it's like I decided to go to the to the the masquerade as as Blade, and they're like, oh, that's not really appropriate. And of course, we think, well, because you know you can't do blackface, but he's not in blackface at all. It's just because he's a vampire hunter, and that's <laughs> vampire. And I just, I love that joke. I mean, it's just, just oh, so. Especially funny. his defense of it. His defense of it is, you know, well, vampires hate vampire hunters. What's wrong with you? But we love Wesley Snipes. We love Wesley Snipes. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love Wesley Snipes? It was it was just such a deadpan, perfect moment right there. Right, and and the blackface joke. thing is never mentioned overtly, but it's always hanging no, no. over those scenes. And I love the way they executed that. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Other uh, the werewolf scenes. Yes, the let's talk about scenes the were, scenes. For me, those were very, very entertaining moments. <laughs> uh, we're we're a werewolf pack, not a swearwolf pack. <laughs> we're werewolves, not swearwolves. That was that was very that was very funny. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like that Captain America language moment. Yeah. You know, stop swearing so much. Why are you always swearing? Uh, you know, then. <laughs> and the uh, we don't sniff our own crotches. We sniff each other's crotches, and it's a greeting. <laughs> Why are you telling them this? Why is that camera pointed at us? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there were there were some pretty good moments with that. And that, of course, leads up to the inevitable 
camera joke that we've been waiting for the whole movie where one of the cameramen is actually murdered. <laughs> Not by a vampire, yeah. but by a werewolf. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was a great kind of gag. But the thing I love about the, there are a couple of things I loved about the werewolves. One is that the, like the werewolves, not werewolves thing is like superficially silly and funny, but it also yeah. makes sense on some level because their whole thing is all the time they're trying to control their impulses. Because yeah. they and they're trying to chain them, they like they're worried they're going to chain, so they need to chain themselves to trees. And they and, and so the werewolves, not werewolves thing is like the Hulk, like don't make me angry, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's it's yeah. this really hilarious take on it. But the whole time, everything they do is structured around trying to control their impulses, trying to maintain some kind of power over themselves. Because once they transform, all of that is lost. And I thought that was a another one of these instances where it doesn't lose sight of like the quote-unquote reality of these monsters, you know, and their motivation, and the like the tension between their humanity and inhumanity. But they play it in a really just great funny way well and i think that it was a nice touch too in that scene where they were chaining themselves up and you know trying to prepare for the full moon and the involuntary change that the guy who was telling the other werewolf to stop cursing so much was the one that was cursing <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and that was a nice touch well, especially the whole like you said to play up that aspect of of self-control and of you know, monitoring what you're doing and saying. I think that was a very, it was an intelligent callback. Yeah. And the whole alpha thing, the way that plays out near the end of the film is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it gets into this sort of, the wonderful thing about this movie is that all of these characters are fucking losers. In spite of the fact that they're like immensely oh, yeah. powerful, oh, yeah. supernatural beings, they are losers to the nth degree. And one of the most fascinating dichotomies that exists here is the different kind of losers that the vampires are when compared to the werewolves. Like, they're both absolute, like, sad sack, pathetic losers. But the vampires oh, yeah. are, like, the quintessential, like, uh, outsider, like, losers, sort of like... Uh, what's the word? Like individualist losers. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, the werewolves are the pack mentality losers. They're the loser bros, right? They're the guy. And they're. Yeah, yeah. They're the conformist losers. You're sort of the non conformist losers and the conformist losers. And the movie doesn't lose sight of the way that both of them are just pathetic <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and, and yeah. both of that and it's kind of great that Stu ends up with the conformist losers instead of the non-conformist losers and so the man yeah, that was a that like was a good touch the perfect sort of wallpaper person like and he even nails it at the end when it's like why are you laughing and he's like well the group was laughing <laughs> you know with mm -hmm. the it's like that's the right answer, whereas the other werewolf was trying to rationalize it or whatever. But Stu just kind of inherently understands that, innately understands that pack mentality, that idea that, well, I'm doing this because other people are doing this, and I want to be accepted. Yep. Right, and essentially that was basically sort of, like, like it wasn't like a good answer, but everyone accepts it additionally because it's Stu, and, you know, 
he was a great guy. Well, but it was a good answer. I mean, it was a bad answer from our perspective. It's a stupid answer, but it was oh, yeah. exactly yeah. the answer that the alpha male wanted to hear. Right, right. You know, and that's what Stu excels at, is just being what other people want him to be. Yeah. Um, oh. And any other jokes and uh, things like AJ, you haven't. Well, let, let's talk about Nick, too. We've got to talk about Nick. We should. Yeah, I mean, he's a major left. character, and he hasn't yeah. really been touched upon. I would like to say that there's one scene between Nick and Stu that I really enjoyed. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, um, Nick is attempting to hide the fact that he's a vampire from Stu. And he's right. able to additionally <laughs> use uh, his newfound powers of hypnosis in order to help him achieve that. Right. right. All the hypnosis scenes are great. The hypnosis in this is spectacular. Um, like, uh, one of the first introductions you get to it, I think, is uh, Deacon uh, performing hypnosis on Nick when um, Deacon's familiar, Jackie, uh, brings over them as you know potential meals and victims, <laughs> and uh, they they serve Nick up some spaghetti and <laughs> and uh, Deacon's like Nick, why don't you eat some biscotti? <laughs> and so Nick takes a bite, and then uh, Deacon waves his hand and says, you know how do your worms taste or something like that right. and it's like hilarious because like at first you're not really sure if anything's actually happening like if it's working <laughs> yeah right but then um it and there's another great callback to that later when nick tries the same thing on stew with chips because i think because he's upset that like everyone likes stew and or French fries, as we call them in America. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Deacon points out to Nick that uh, it, it, it doesn't work on chips. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it only it works, works on things on that look like worms already. Like worms. <laughs> Which is great. But uh, Nick sits down with Stu to tell him that uh, he's a vampire. Right, the and coming he, out scene. And it's played out like a reality TV show so well. And that's absolutely hilarious because, yeah. like, uh, Nick mentions, like, I, I'm sure that you've noticed a few things changing about me. <laughs> right. And he mentions, like, you know, and, you know, usually you win all our tennis games and I've won the last three. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and we used to play tennis during the day. Now, have you wondered why we always have to play at night now? <laughs> And the great thing about that is Stu's responses where it's just like, like it would be exactly the responses you would expect if you were breaking some kind of unexpected news to someone. Like if you were coming out or if you were saying, oh, yeah, I have cancer or if you were whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. It was one of those like revelation scenes. One of those um, really serious. Um, right. Uh, scenes where they're mentioning things that are completely like 
you know, someone's like, oh, yeah, that does actually make sense, right. you know. And still he's just like, yeah. Yeah, like, it's very, like, sort of sad, like, yeah, I've been thinking about it, yeah. Not, at no point is he like, yeah, it's kind of fucking obvious or anything. He's just, like, very subdued and accepting of the whole thing. And there's no humor at all. It's it's very... Right. Well, there are no jokes, right. but it's funny. <laughs> it's very, you know. Yeah, that was a, that was a great scene. Um... Anything else you want to touch on in the movie? Um, we should talk about Jackie. Yeah, I, I mean Jackie's kind of the whole familiar relationship is kind of an interesting one. Did you did you have something you wanted to say about that? <laughs> um. I think I like the fact that they built up Jackie before um, returning to Peter because that kind of it was sort of a build up to a better payoff because you see Jackie and the character is introduced to you and you don't feel that much sympathy for her like you feel bad but also she's kind of annoying anyone else get that i mean i, I think that i, I don't know I, I mean she's very pragmatic about the way she goes about this right yeah. she wants to become a vampire she's going to do the work she has to do she's given an assignment she's going to fill it fulfill it um right but she like doesn't she she plays it very um like she doesn't look past anything that's going on there's a lack of like awareness as to what's happening of yeah. basically like yeah. pushing it off and um but you know he's uh he's an immortal being of you know like who kills people so she's kind of protecting herself there yeah well i don't know to what degree she's protecting herself i think it's one of uh, i think it's a couple of things going on i mean on one hand she i mean who wouldn't want eternal life right <laughs> uh and she's really whole hog into the idea of becoming a vampire and to, really sold on the idea that she's going to get eternal life out of this bargain and hell if someone's like, oh you can have eternal life i'd probably bring them victims too but she's obviously like irritated um she's very much like the, I get a very like middle management vibe from her. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do what I have to do to get promoted boss. But also like once the boss isn't there, she's like the fucking asshole. Right. <laughs> so it's very it, transactional for her. You don't get the sense. Like a lot of times the servants of vampires in horror films, or even the, like if you think of like, um, uh, you know, Dr. Frankenstein's uh, Iago. Uh, it's like they're just like fiercely loyal yeah, to their, to their boss. And they're doing it. with knots for up to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're do and they're doing it out of this sense of just blind devotion. So to have her not be operating out of that framework at all, but to be just totally like utilitarian about it, like I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get what I want to get. Uh, is great. Well, and I that, liked, yeah. I liked the part where she was explaining her approach too, where she's like, 
well, I have to know these people, but I can't be too attached to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like sending her ex-boyfriend from when she was 12, who was, of course, Nick, and winds up, right. he winds up getting, you know, turned, sending him in to get eaten. It's like, okay, that's, that's both really practical and really petty at the same time. <laughs> petty is exactly the word. And the woman who coined some, some uh, you know, pet name for her that she hated in college. You know, yeah, yeah. She sat next to her in class in one semester. Yeah. It's just oh. that kind of, it's all like, it is, she, that's the word. That is exactly the word for her is petty. She was like just completely petty. Yep. Um, and at the end, <laughs> where um, Nick finally ends up turning her after um, he gets banished from the flat. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's a vampire. And then there's a scene at the end where she's like talking to her husband. She's like, and my husband is now my familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, it's I love you. <laughs> I love you, but I am your master. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, the rules have changed. Really great because that's yeah. you know. Like I think she says there's been a shift in power dynamics. Right. Yes. Yeah. She's finally gotten the promotion, and now she gets to boss around, you know, the people who used to be right equals slash above her. Right. Rather than just turning her husband, you know, which is what if she was really like. If it was really just a loving relationship and she just wanted her husband to live forever like her, like she would have done that right away. But it's like, nah, I'm going to make, like, I had to play this game. I'm going to make him play it too, you know? Right. And some part uh, of her might be, like, letting him get older while she stays younger. Yeah. (laughs) Even that ego. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the scene where Nick just starts going through the town and going through all these bars yeah. and party scenes and all these other places, just announcing, I'm a vampire. <laughs> like Twilight. <laughs> like, yeah, Twilight. like Twilight. <laughs> I thought yeah. that was that was one of those moments where it shows that this is not the most intelligent guy in the world. <laughs> turned into a vampire but at the same time i thought that was actually a very realistic moment because there are a lot of idiots out there that just go around announcing everything (laughs) to anybody you know that's that's the facebook generation that's that's uh you know that's i'm going to take a picture of every single meal that i eat and put it on the internet generation right that's what would happen these days if someone were to just get turned into a vampire when they were still out there living that frat boy lifestyle. They would just right. go out there and just announce it like, Woo, look at me, I drink blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and and then they showcase, of course, how badly that can fuck things up. <laughs> I love how the guy, he, the vampire hunter, is like, oh, that's great, I'm a vampire hunter. Like, It's kind of interesting because... <laughs> The fact that he says that at all, like, he's also kind of a moron. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, you're a vampire? I'm a vampire hunter. Isn't that like- and, and the funny thing is, I they actually played that scene very well because, like Nick said, I thought he was joking. Yeah. Like, right. And I kind of brushed off, like, I thought he was joking, too, because right. let's be honest. Vampires are real, but most people don't know it. Someone walks up to you and says, I'm a vampire. 
Yeah, you'd there's like, going to be someone that's going to have that sarcastic comeback yeah. of, "Really, I'm a vampire hunter." Right. Yeah, I'm Blade, motherfucker. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's a logical joke, and the fact that there was actually a payoff to it, I really, right. really appreciated that. Right. And how Nick responds to it is great. He basically is like, "Yeah, buddy, sure." <laughs> Right. Uh, and he gave him his email address. He gave him his email. <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> that was one of those ridiculous lines. Like, you gave him the. How and why? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a cool guy, right? Yeah. Had an impressive beard. I mean, that, that kind of like, you know. Like you've all felt that at one point or another of you there's someone online who says something outrageous and you're like, Hey, fucking Adam as a friend, you know? Right, right. Oh yeah, yeah. And also the casting of that guy, even though he's only in the film like for one scene alive and one scene <laughs> dead, is pitch yeah. perfect. Because he simultaneously looks like both the kind of hipster you would meet in the bar who would make a snide joke about being a vampire hunter <laughs> and an actual vampire hunter. Yes, yeah. Between, like, the beard and the just everything about him, his build and the way he, the way he, the line delivery, and it, it all, it's so perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I really uh, appreciated the, the way that they cast the movie. I think that they chose a lot of great actors for the roles. Right. Even the smaller roles. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think especially the smaller roles in a lot of ways, because those smaller roles are really what brought the movie to life. Because if it was just those same three guys for an hour and a half, yeah. I don't know if I could have I don't know if I could have done them watching the movie <laughs> all the way through in one sitting. Yeah. But those little smaller roles really were what kind of broke that up and actually made the movie work. Yeah. And certainly giving the main characters other characters to play off of. Uh, so we probably – we're pretty deep in – we're well past an hour here. <laughs> uh, oh, so yeah. we should probably think about wrapping up. And I want to talk – usually at the end of the podcast, we talk about the end of the movie. And I do want to talk about the end of the movie because I'm ambivalent about the way the movie ended. Uh, mm-hmm. But before we do that, do, a- a- anything else you guys want to mention or talk about? or No? Not that's coming to mind. Okay. So let's move on to the ending. How did you guys feel about the ending of this film? Because this, like, this is probably the first movie, even though it's a, it's a vampire movie. Uh, you know, even though it's a movie about a bunch of creatures that kill humans to survive, uh, this is. I think probably the first movie we've ever done on the podcast to have an unequivocally happy ending, <laughs> like a really like joyously happy ending where everything yeah. works out for every yeah. character. Um, and it has a kind of fake out sad ending before the happy ending, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. I really We're- liked the ending. I really liked it as a happy ending. I, um, 
I think it uh I think it just went thematically with the movie very well. Um I also think that it it was much better. I think it was a lot better um like it said something about Stu better than just Stu dying. Um and <laughs> um like that that the scene where you know the vampires get to stew and um vladislav is i think it was vladislav on the hill trying to comfort nick i think it was deacon actually oh, deacon. yeah but uh yeah. you know deacon comforting nick and going through you know morning if it had left off there i don't think like it just wouldn't have fit with the rest of the movie really yeah. Yeah, there's I think that would have like, been too much of a downer. Right. And there's also, like, like, it's funnier that everything worked out perfectly in the end, you know? Like, not just because it, land, it ended on, like, a happy note, but um, <laughs> just that, you know, the vampires and the werewolves got together and, you know, the, the werewolves come into the vampire's flat and you know they're making there's a reconciliation the there of, of the age-old um <laughs> rivalry of vampire versus werewolf right 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 and once again of course it's Stu who facilitates it <laughs> well yeah yeah because he's a great guy he's a great guy <laughs> <laughs> uh, i um people, uh, did you want to say anything about the ending yeah, I, I'm kind of with you on being ambivalent about it, but at the same time, as happy as the ending was, it kind of goes back to something that you mentioned earlier, where, like you said, these guys are all absolute pathetic losers. <laughs> <laughs> so for them, the happy ending is the status quo remains intact, and now there are more of them. <laughs> like that's that's yeah, the they have more friends ending. now. That's yeah. the happy ending. There are more. There are now more pathetic, waste of space losers in their <laughs> friends group. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know like that's, that's what I strive for. Well, yeah, I know. But I don't know. I I, I I'm ambivalent because on some level this having both endings feels like a real kind of have your cake and eat it too sort of thing where they got to do the sad ending complete with Deacon's little monologue there about like the costs of being a vampire, you know, the emotional Mm -hmm. toll of having to watch your friends die, having to basically watch everyone around you die and how immortality kind of sucks and they get the sad payoff to the stew storyline, which is like, oh yeah, you know, being around all these monsters is pretty dangerous for a human being. Um, but then they also get to give every character that you care about a happy ending. <laughs> so everyone gets to fe- leave the theater feeling good. And they so they get to like pay the like the the thematic question of the film off or the, the the sort of thematic ideas of the film off through the sad ending but then they get 
the happy ending in there so nobody actually leaves the theater disappointed. Uh, and I generally speaking, I really hate that. Um, mm-hmm. in, in other movies, I would think that would be, especially in a dramatic film that tries to pull that shit where it goes, okay, let's give the sad ending so that this seems like a serious movie. And then let's give the happy ending so that nobody gets pissed off and gives it, you know, yeah, we don't get any yeah. bad. You, It's like, we get the sad end. We had the sad ending for the critics, and then we have the happy ending for the audience, right? Right. And I, I think that's generally really insincere and fucking dumb. But I, I'm much warmer to that ending in this film than I would normally be. But I feel like it did that a little bit with um, Viago's storyline too, where you got like the. The one hand, on the one hand, you got the sad ending with him and the woman he's been pining mm-hmm. after for all this time, where he's like watching her from afar, and he has to deal with the fact that she's now 90 years old, and it's only a matter of time before she dies, and where he's like dealing with that mortality. But he then like, oh well, I'll just make her a vampire, and now we're together. And and then, yeah. then there's the cradle robbing joke, of course, where like he's the one robbing the cradle, even though he looks like he's, you know, 35, and she looks like she's 96. Um, I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed that little scene. <laughs> and you get the kind of sweet, like you know, you you get the bittersweet ending, and then you get the like happy ending. It's like, oh hey, we got both, you know. Uh, but I think it works in this movie on one level because it's a comedy, <laughs> right. you know, mm-hmm. and there's something almost, I think to say Shakespearean would be too much, but there's something almost like very traditional about a comedy ending that way, about that ending that somehow miraculously manages to find a happy ending for every character. And I think all the happy endings it found for the characters were really, really very appropriate Mm. uh, and made sense given like the reality they're existing. And like, of course, if Stu gets mauled by, and in fact, I kind of saw the Stu thing coming. I'm like, oh, he got mauled by werewolves. Well, he's going to turn into a werewolf, you know, that that makes sense. And of course, he had an easy answer to the problem of like having to watch his old girlfriend waste away and die. He's a vampire. You just make her a vampire. You know, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense within the like rules of the universe. And it also pays off every character pretty well. Like the Vlad gets together with his ex again. And like, how long is that going to last? And in comedy, traditionally speaking, there's this idea that there's an equilibrium in place at the beginning of the movie so, or, in, or in the beginning of the play, if it's a play. In the beginning of the plot, there's an equilibrium in place. Something happens that distorts that equilibrium, and then at the end of the movie, the equilibrium is reestablished. And this is that to a T. At the beginning of the movie, the equilibrium well, the equilibrium is reestablished and the characters have grown in some ways. So in the beginning of the movie, there's a real equilibrium in the place in that, like, literally, Deacon hasn't done the dishes for five years. <laughs> so that's the rut they're in, you know? There, there's this really firmly established routine that has been going on for so long that five years seems like 
kind of a long time to not have done the dishes, <laughs> but not like, you know, not, not like an obscenely long time. And then something happens. Nick is transformed into a vampire and that fucks everything up for everyone. And, and Stu is introduced and everything's thrown out of equilibrium. And then by the end of the movie, boom. They found a new equilibrium, and everyone's fit back into it, and everyone can live in it. You know, life goes on, uh, and life finds a way to perpetuate itself, even though in this case it's undeath that finds a way to perpetuate itself, or unlife. <laughs> so I thought it worked. You know, I think maybe I'm willing to give the movie a pass on some level because I liked it so much otherwise, and I feel like it kind of earned its its happy ending, and also because – it just the audacity of giving these people who live on human life, you know, live on human death, who live feeding on human blood, <laughs> and who we've watched kind of callously murder a bunch of people, giving them an unequivocally happy ending, I think, is audacious and kind of, kind of, oh, definitely, in a way, a subversion of what you'd expect. Oh yeah, the happy ending is that these these creatures can continue killing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Stu, who we kind of like, he's a he's a werewolf now, so he can he, he can kill people too, and you don't have to worry about his safety anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, and 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 you know that this one group of inhuman killing machines is now buddy buddy with the other group, and they use it's like humans are totally like on the outside. Like it, the human life has <laughs> like who cares? Like. Even like a character, like all of your human points of entry in this movie are uh, monsters by the end of it. Like Jackie's mm -hmm. a vampire, Stu's a werewolf, and Nick is a vampire. So there are no human characters left in the film to even yeah. try to care about. <laughs> yeah. So uh, any other thoughts on the ending of the film? No, no, I think we're done. I think we're done, guys. Yeah, I think we're yeah. good. I think uh, this, we can we've been doing this. this for a while. Let's just fuck it. Call it a day, you know? <laughs> fuck it. Fuck uh, it. All right. Okay. All good.